G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast, the pre-season edition, but we're ticking ever closer to the start of the real thing and a little bit of a taste coming next week when AFL men's sides have their first practised hitouts and uh, that, of course, a precursor to a very abbreviated pre-season series that we get these days but um, the real thing kicking off not too far away at all that's the thing about February you sort of think oh it's only February but remember she's a few days shorter than those other months and uh, before you know it the season is just around the corner so really starting to uh, zero in on preparation now clubs uh, injuries of more consequence and uh, wow fair Injury toll for a number of clubs over the past week, which we'll talk about very shortly. Of course, our ongoing series, uh, our top 20 movies and music, we are down to number six this week, getting towards the pointy end now uh, of our favourite movies and music. More footy flashbacks, as per usual, and some philosophical and uh, at times whimsical um, life advice in life hacks to look forward to as well. As I say, very good evening, as it happens to my footyology co-host, Marcus Fine. How are you going, Finey? Very nice. High five. I don't know. I don't know why I called you Marcus either. Does that annoy you? Yeah, I'm not a Marcus, but yeah, I'll give a little clue for what's coming later on. I'm good. The I love the way the AFL season takes shape. Well, I don't actually. There's an intra club before a practice match that is a practice match for a pre-season. You know, it's like it's like a sort of a, a shrew or a marmot, one of those little, um, what are they called? The meerkats. Just poking their head out, having a look around for the football season coming ahead before they venture out into the scary world. I reckon you're, you're, you're about to say marmoset. Yeah, I, I did, but I, yeah, I meant meerkat. But what is a practice match before... The official practice match. Yeah, I know. That's pretty, that's pretty weird, isn't it? Well, you know, you reap what you sow. I've always been pretty dirty about this. I was a big fan of the preseason. I liked it. You and I both, you know, we saw our sides triumph in preseason. Essendon in 93, beating Richmond in front of, what was it, 70-something thousand fans, a precursor to their day premiership that year. St Kilda in 96, big winners over... Carlton in front of another big crowd, and that was a, a precursor of sorts to their successful couple of years in 97 and 98. So it actually did have meaning, and it really, I'll be honest here, it really pissed me off that bloody Carlton won a couple of night premierships and then I think won the wooden spoon both times. And on the back of those two abject performances, everyone said, ah, it's no guide, Sides weren't trying. Well, I reckon more often than not, it was a pretty good guide to what was to come. And I thought the games had meaning and the punters liked them. And uh, 
And now it's all sort of meaningless. And because everyone knows they're meaningless, it's really hard to be, get invested in them at all. Yes, and Kildare also played a role in its demise when they, when they won it over Geelong and referred oh, to yes. the trophy as a toilet seat. Oh, and, and, and uh, Grant Thomas and Lenny Hayes got up yes. there looking like someone had just shot yeah, yeah. their grandmother. What, what was your favourite actual practice game? Not, not any of the night series or pre-season comp. Do you remember any practice? I, I had one that I loved. Yeah, I've got a good one. Uh, 1978, I went down to Glenferry Oval to watch Hawthorne Essendon the week before the season. I'd never... Um, I was going to the footy when it was still played at Glenferry Oval, but I never actually saw a game there. So I, was, I really wanted to see a game there. So I fulfilled that wish. The other thing I did, which um, I actually crap my pants about was that uh, Hawthorne kicked a goal and um, I was at the oh, what, what it would now be called the gym end but um, I got I marked the ball as it went through and I booted it back and latched onto this beautiful torpedo which sailed and sailed and sailed and Sconley Matthews so hard <laughs> on the head he really started staggering around and he looked around and he was filthy as and um, I thought, God, he's going to come after me. But uh, fortunately, he didn't. And that was actually a precursor to the day I poured scalding hot coffee over him during the 1993 preliminary final. So I got him twice and got away with it both times. Doesn't happen often with lethal. What's your practice match memory? I have, I have, I'll run through three very quickly. One was going up to Don Disher, Ballarat policeman and average AFL footballer in the grandstand with a football that I was getting signed by all the players and offered it to him. And he said, you know, my meter sign and I'm no good. Well, at least he was honest. Um, <laughs> I found that odd. Another was an intra-club practice game where Neil Basanko and Rex Hunt had the biggest brawl you've ever seen in the, in the mouth of the race. And players were trying to pull them off each other. And I just remember Basanko saying to him, <laughs> this was such a good comment. He goes, you can go up the race, you can go back home, but I'll find you, Rex. I'll find you. And Rex goes, you sure will, mate. I'll be at training on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the other one was at Skinner Reserve. Footscray was playing St Kilda. And Lockett was about to fold Barry Stanfield into a flag and put him into the one. You know where the Golumpo puts the flag? I yeah. swear he was going to kill him, Rowan. And I was yelling. I was, I was just going to Lockett, no, no. The season's two weeks away. No. And he looked at, up at me and sort of acknowledged it and walked away from Stanfield. <laughs> and as he walked away, you know what I said? Very lucky I was here, Stanfield. Very lucky. Was that plug a locket or plunge a locket, as Tim Webster would call it? And my favourite uh, my favorite line about Skinner Reserve out in Braybrook there wasn't, it may not be the end of the world, but you can sure as hell see it from there. Uh, oh, I've got one last one. Oh, here we Kilda. go. Come no, on. Very quick, St Kilda were playing Sydney. Listen to this. St Kilda were playing Sydney. Lavington. So I drove to Lavington. I thought, you know, Lavington or whatever it's called. Um, I thought, well, it's a suburb. I couldn't, you know, I'll, I'll pick up the crowd and get, I'll work out where it is. They weren't playing at Lavington, the suburb. It was Lavington or whatever. One, one or the other in near Mildura or Aubrey. So I was driving around a suburb that didn't have a football game while St Kilda were about to play, I think, north or south on the border. Yeah, Lavington, I think, near Albury. Um, yeah, and, some... and I went to Laverton, the suburb. Well done. Nice work. Yeah. All right, uh, there you go. There's our special um, uh, spontaneous pre-season episode of 
the podcast. Plenty of news though to talk about. Let's get into it. On Footyology Newsfeed. Well, plenty of news, uh, mostly about one familiar recurring theme, and that is injuries. And, uh, boy, some untimely injuries around. Uh, just a, a quick list off the top of my head, and apologies if I've missed some here, but West Coast got some major concerns over both Oscar Allen and uh, Jamie Cripps, um, throw in Jack Darling, of course, not playing because of his uh, vaccine hesitancy, and there's some pretty big forward issues for the uh, the Eagles there, three key forwards. Sam Walsh um, out, uh, we think, for the early rounds of a season for the Blues with uh, syndesmosis, um, football's currently most fashionable injury. Um, massive blow for the Blues, obviously. And uh, probably the biggest blow of all, though it hasn't had as much publicity, but terrible news for the Suns. They cannot take a trick on the injury front. Ben King going down and the full catastrophe, ACL, for him, he will miss the season. And that's, uh, well, a bigger disaster, actually, than uh, losing Matt Rowell was last year because at least he came back at some stage. Um, so shocking news there. And uh, another one today, too, for Brisbane, Dane Zorko, uh, an ankle injury, and he may miss some early season games as well. It's probably the worst possible time for a key player to get a serious injury finding. Yeah, let's go to Gold Coast first. The deflating news that Ben King had done his ACL. Now, I'm not saying Ben King's, and I don't think you would either, the best player on that list. Probably Tuke Miller now holds that position. And Matt Rowell, of course, have great potential. They've got others. But Ben King may be the most important because he's the tall forward that gives them something to kick to. He's a target. And also, he seems to epitomise the future of Gold Coast in that if he stays, he franks their possible potential as a improving team. A lot of people look to Ben King as the face of the future and the face of now. To lose him and the incident where recruit top 10 draftee Mac Andrew collides into him in one of these pre-season practice games, both are taken off and the news is... Okay for Mac Andrew, but no good for Ben. And imagine how the coach feels. The player terrible, of course, but the playing group, and they don't have a lot of fans. But how would you feel if your club is almost, especially a, a, a club as vulnerable as Gold Coast, is virtually out of the running before the first bounce? That is sickening. And probably Gil McLaughlin feels it worst of all because the AFL have invested heavily in the Gold Coast, and this will affect them in every sense, wouldn't it? Well, no club has depended more on their uh, their biggest names than the Suns. And I can't, to be honest, over, I don't know, seven or eight years now, think of a club that's ritually had as many of those stars on the sidelines. And that's going way back to even Gary Ablett in 2014, when uh, cruelly, you know, they were probably at their highest point then and looking finals bound. And then he did his shoulder and it, it all crumbled from there but ever since then. It's barely a moment when Gold Coast don't have at least one, if not two or three, and their very best players on the casualty list. So shocking luck for them. By the same token, I think Carlton, even though, you know, it's a, a limited chunk of the season, but gee, Sam, losing Sam Walsh is a massive blow for the Blues. Yeah, I mean, 
you're right. I, I, let's take it on face value that he misses the first month. Terrible, because Carlton need to get off to a good start. They need to beat Richmond. And that is such a, an important game there because Richmond, of course, sort of it's downward spiraled at the end of last year. And that game always sets Carlton off on the wrong foot. But to not have Sam Walsh makes it difficult. And now that new look midfield will have to wait a little bit. Still, with Cripps and Ferrer and Hewitt, if they can get off to a decent start, come on, you're not a one-man team, Carlton. What a fillip it'll be when Walsh is injected back into the team. So there's almost an opportunity for Carlton. None for Gold Coast, but I think there's a little one for the Blues. No, that's a good point. And, you know, that's a, a sort of coachy-sounding line, but I, I think it actually does have some merit. So I uh, probably should talk about the ramifications for the Eagles too, because uh, those three injuries we're talking about, all, well, not three injuries, two injuries and a, um, what do you call it, a standoffishness, um, all in the same area of the ground. And uh, with that, the Eagles potentially, without uh, two of their three key forwards and their finest um, adult film star. <laughs> yeah, I love that, Jay. Who, who is it that he looks like? <laughs> Tom Byron. Uh, uh, sorry, everyone, if you missed the previous 500 references to that. Uh, Jamie Cripps does bear a certain resemblance to an adult film star, Tom Byron. Check it out sometime. Anyway, um, Jamie Cripps, of course, uh, what's his injury again? It's just temporarily. Oh, oh, pectoral, it's a pectoral muscle. And uh, they, pectoral. Can re- they can really be hard to repair. So that could be a 10-weeker. Look, Roman, I think we're both on the same page. Just from talking to you, that this might be the excuse for what we think was going to happen anyhow, and that is the decline of Eagles due to an ageing list. But it also puts pressure on those older players because Kennedy going around for one more season, hardly a 22-game prospect at the start of the season, given his recent run with injuries. He's just got to play every week, at least till one of those two come back. I mean, Darling... We find out in a few days because he's got a cutoff point, and apparently there's a, a one of the new possible vaccinations meets with his approbation. Does he? Does Jack Darling in his spare time have a home laboratory in which he tests all of the efficacy of vaccines? Because he doesn't seem to be that sort of bloke to me. I don't know he's probably consulted those leading epidemiologists, Andrew Bolton, Rita Panahi, finding. Yeah, I, I, you know what. I don't think he could... Uh, no, I'm not, I don't know whether he's bright or not. He might be a genius, but he's not been a genius on this. And it's funny because a lot of these people who make a... They become a bit of a core celeb and they, on on the internet and in social you know, chat rooms, become heroes, especially public figures who are anti-vaxxers. And in their small world, they feel a need or a responsibility to this cadre of followers to to stick to the plan. He seems to have an out with a new vaccination that is Australia-bound, as though, oh, no, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I was only anti the first vaccine. So he might he might be able to wiggle his way out of it because I believe that's what he wants to do. All right. Uh, the other thing we'll just touch on quickly too, Richmond uh, raising a few eyebrows there, going for joint captains, Dylan Grimes, one of them probably no surprise, but I reckon the other one, would have surprised a lot of people, and that was the appointment of Toby Nankervis. And another good indicator about how differently 
players can be viewed internally to externally. Actually, having said that, I mean, um, uh, Richmond fans are pretty aware of Toby Nankervis's value, not only as a ruckman, but as a, a leadership presence around the ground. But uh, boy, to actually get the captaincy mantle, and remember only coming to the club in 2017, no coincidence, that's when they came good, of course, but uh, what a fantastic achievement by, you know, a guy who wasn't thought sufficiently of by Sydney to keep his services. He's gone on and played in three flags and become um, co-captain of that side. Fantastic effort. And um, they're lateral thinkers, the Tigers, and uh, interesting to see how he goes. But uh, the um, the uh, the pressure was on. He basically selected himself and forced him into having co-captains. So very interesting moves there at Punt Road. Now, I know it hasn't been taken up of recent times, but the idea was that Richmond would make captains wear the number 17 guernsey. So do they wear number eight and a half each? <laughs> yeah, very if they, good. If they want to do that. Who was the last? Was Chris Newman might have been the last to do that, was he? Yeah, I think he was. Yeah, Cochin yeah. succeeded him, didn't he, as captain? Did Cochin yeah. try it for a year? Or mm. I thought there was a time he, he tried it and then he gave it back. Or, maybe, or, yeah, maybe. Or, or did Newman go back to his original yeah, number? Mate, I think somebody went back, but hasn't really stuck the Jack Dyer number. It was oh, like, when, uh, like when Collingwood's Andrew Witts abandoned number 49 to go back to his original number 65. You liked that, didn't you? Yeah, I did. It was, I it did. Was <laughs> out of loyalty to all those duffel coat wearers that <laughs> went 65. Um, I mean, Collingwood used to be one, two, three, captain, vice captain, deputy vice captain in the olden days, Rowan. But just on Richmond's selection, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be smart here or, or quotable, though I never am that, but I was absolutely unsurprised that Nan Curvis was one of the co-captains and a little surprised that Grimes was. Why? Um, because Grimes is the leader of the back line, but I don't, I don't even know what he sounds like. I don't, haven't heard much of Grimes in his career. I think he's really? an, inter, an internal force, an internal force. Um, he goes about his job modestly. And he's also, I just find that he's sort of his leader of the back line and, you know, didn't need any more. I, I was surprised he was picked. I thought they would have gone maybe Nankervis and a younger person. Yeah, well, I think plenty of people might have expected Dusty to get the gong too. I, I guess the thing with Dusty is, you know, he's going to play the way he plays regardless of whether he's got the title or not. So you might as well, um, you know, give it to someone else and maybe give them a lift and you're going to get the best of Dusty anyway. So yeah, yeah. In interesting move and, uh, yeah, trend uh, back towards shared captaincy duties when we thought that one was on the nose there for a while. And, uh, look, a bit of news around. We'll just touch on this one quickly, but um, very interesting uh, story around that, uh, well, controversial story that went on for a long time about the Adelaide training camp uh, in the end, Collective Mind, the company that uh, was responsible for running that camp, um, sued the Nine Network, now owners of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, for defamation and uh, actually won the battle. And uh, part of that settlement was uh, Nine issuing a public apology for besmirching their reputation, withdrawing a series of articles, I think around a dozen. Uh, uh, written by both Sam McClure and Caroline Wilson from the uh, Channel 9 journalistic archives. 
And the most interesting one of a lot, and, um, oh, gee, I thought, I don't know about this. Um, Sam McClure won the Golden Quill, not the Golden Quill, sorry, the Quill for Best Sports Story uh, for that piece, the original piece he wrote about the Adelaide training camp. Um, and the committee of the Melbourne Press Club, which runs the Quill Awards, uh, had a meeting um, after this decision was made and decided to strip McClure of that gong and awarded instead to uh, Michael Warner from the Herald Sun for, uh, gee, I've temporarily forgotten the story he won it for, but um, that is uh, unforeseen, not unforeseen, that is, uh, what's, what hasn't happened before, unprecedented territory um, in the province of journalistic awards. And, um, you know, there's been plenty of times big stories have been subsequently found to have a bit of dodgy information or, you know, someone's been sued over them and lost. Very rarely, though, do they revisit um, the awarding of awards on those stories. So I, I must say, I, I, I really thought that was a great story by Sam McClure. And I don't know, look, I, I don't want to get in trouble myself here, but I think the apology from Nine, the way it was couched, it was less than a completely grovelly, fulsome Apology. So um, if I could sort of tiptoe around this obliquely, you know, I'm not sure that the uh, whole truth wasn't, no, <laughs> I'm not sure that there wasn't more than an element of truth about what was written. There may have been aspects of it that were overcooked, but uh, I'm not sure the sub, the actual substance of the story was negated. Caroline Wilson, this won't surprise you, Fanny, certainly very unapologetic about her part in this. But, um, yeah, very interesting saga about a training camp which is now, what, over, well, about more than four years ago. You said you were tiptoeing around carefully. May I put my marching boots on or my kicking boots and wade right in? Oh, well, as, as long as you don't get me sued. I might get you sued. Okay, good. I, first of all, completely agree with the stripping of the award for Sam McClure. I think that this reporting was, it wasn't scurrilous. What it was, was I feel based on the interpretation of discussions had with journalists, had journalists had with um, individuals who were at the camp and maybe people who knew people who were at the camp. And Sam McClure in particular created, I believe, a scenario that was true in some people's minds. These are very testing camps, these bonding camps. Now, for some, it suited. For others, it didn't. It never is going to be universally liked. Waking up in the middle of the night, tested, your your limits are tested, etc. It's not hard to get uh, dissenting voices. And then to jigsaw together that camp and a fall away in a team's performance becomes a matter of journalistic creativity. And it was a drum that was banged and banged and beaten and beaten by Sam McClure on SEN, who, by the way, in, this, in their covering of this story, has quoted from the podcast of Caroline Wilson, Don't Shoot the Messenger, in which she has fulsome praise for Sam McClure. At no point does this article point out that Sam McClure is an employee of SEN. They, you know, avoid that, sidestep that with all the integrity 
of a Gray Street hooker. Now, here's the fact. The fact is that this company, what, what was the name of that organisation, Rowan? Uh, Collective Mind. Yeah, not creative, Collective Mind. Uh, they stand on their record. They, they don't require any qualifications if they're used or hired by an organisation, so be it. And it was publicly they were publicly lambasted for not having degrees in psychology, etc., across the board. Anyhow, the bottom line is that this story became a vehicle of importance, particularly for Sam McClure on radio and again Caroline Wilson in the newspaper. I'm not saying that what they reported wasn't in part correct because they spoke to individuals, certain players who were not comfortable with the collect uh, collective mind approach. But I will say this, that the finding certainly justifies the response, which is the stripping of the award, and it doesn't justify the defensive stance taken by Caroline Wilson, in which she proudly puts up her record and Sam's record as a tough investigative journalist. This is not investigative journalism, Rowan. This is creative journalism, where a little bit of fact is spun into a tapestry and a story made to suit the times. That's what I'm saying. Well, uh, yeah. I'm, no, I'm so glad it came out. No, fairly strongly expressed. I, mean, I will say there's a good reason Caro has always been known as the Fonzie of football writing. Um, struggles to concede error. Uh, she's not alone there, incidentally. But uh, uh, wrapping up our news update this week, of course, another round of uh, what is turning into a fascinating AFLW season, round six last weekend. And um, one of the uh, most dramatic and uh, impactful, I guess, rounds of the season so far, and uh, in fact, including a game that some people are calling the best game of AFLW yet played, and that was the final game of the round, finally, in which the Western Bulldogs put, uh, caused a massive upset in defeating Adelaide at home at Norwood by a solitary point, 8-149. Great kicking there to the Crows, 7 6 48. Now, the doggies were fantastic early on in this game. Bonnie, too good, really strong up forward. Uh, Rochelle Cranston, really good. Uh, Captain Ellie Blackburn, really leading the way with a heap of um, possession and kicked a great goal. Uh, so, dogs are up to 6 1 by half time. Already their highest season total. But uh, Adelaide, as they were uh, prone to do, came flying back. Ebony Marinoff, and Hatchard. Um, Aaron Phillips, all the usual suspects, and actually look like they we're going to mow the doggies down. Uh, but the dogs held their nerve in the last couple of minutes. Uh, desperate defence didn't allow a score, um, and the siren went to much jubilation from the visiting side. So that knocked Adelaide from the top of the ladder, and that position now has gone back to Fremantle. Fremantle, of course, on the weekend, um, a thumping, thumping 42-point win over a very disappointing Carlton. They're having a shocking season, the Blues. Fremantle, 7-9-51, defeating Carlton, 1-3-9. But Freo, been a pretty good side now for a number of years and might finally get their just desserts for it this year. Brisbane, defending Premier, well, they perhaps a bit lucky to scrape over the line against the Saints, who have uh, been hapless this year, but uh, a much better performance from them. Collingwood, very comfortable winners over West Coast. 
And Melbourne, of course, your uh, favourite team, Fonny, in a women's football sense. Uh, big winners over GWS by 37 points. In fact, GWS held to just 1-1 in this game. And Melbourne, but for inaccuracy, could have even won by a lot more. They finished with a tally of six goals. Eight. North Melbourne continuing to play some great footy, 5-7-37, defeating Richmond. And the other big improver of this season, Gold Coast. Um, who, after failing to win a game at all last season, um, are now right in the running for the top six. In fact, uh, you'd say they're a really good chance to make it. And uh, they had an 11-point win over the Cats. So um, really exciting finish to the AFLW season, looming finding. It's been some, some really terrific football played under a lot of logistical difficulties thanks to COVID. I've got to say, you mentioned that great win by the Doggies and the win by Brisbane, very similar because both games ended with the opposition, St Kilda in the Brisbane game and, of course, the Mighty Crows, having shots of goal that were smothered right near the goal mouth and sort of the equivalent of either a brilliant save in soccer or just that diving, maybe catching cricket, but not always the batsman or the scorer in a football sense is the hero. So defenders getting their opportunity to almost be cheered off the ground. Great. I feel sorry for the Saints. Five days and they still don't have a win, but they lost to West Coast by a point in a desperate finish. And Brisbane, who made it four games in a row in a desperate finish. So they're not playing terribly. No, and I've been keeping an eye too on uh, a favourite player of mine, finally, a former junior teammate of my daughter, that is uh, Tilly Lucas-Rodden. She's probably been the Saints' best player or very close to their best player in the last couple of games, has really uh, improved a heap this season. So, well done, Tilly. Fantastic effort from her. Can um, you ask her, if you know her, mm-hmm. that every time she gets in the best, does she add another tattooed? Uh, yes, uh, I know she didn't have them uh, as yet when she was playing juniors with Andrea, but uh, yep, she's made up uh, made up for lost time. Um, very. She has, by the way, she has a tattoo I haven't seen in thirty years. What's let that? Alone, she's got the spider web on the elbow. Oh, really? I thought you were going to say Popeye or something. Ooh. <laughs> the very tough spider web elbow. Yeah, okay. Well, elbows are painful enough without a spider web on them. That uh, ramps up the hurt. All right. Uh, that is enough news feed for this week. Uh, time now to get to number six in this great marathon countdown of our favourite movies and music. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Oh, a couple of real personal favourites for me this week, Fine. In fact, I'm thinking about both of them, wondering, gee, have, have they slipped as low as number six? Must be some quality material above that. Well, there is. But here are two favourites. Uh, in a movie sense, no doubt. I've talked about this, talked about this a couple of weeks ago because the same director bobbed up with another of my favourite films. I'm talking comedy, and uh, you may guess the direction in which I'm leaning. It is towards Woody Allen and his very first feature film, 1969, finally. It is Take the Money and Run, arguably the first mockumentary ever made 
directed by Woody Allen, starring he and Janet Margolin, and a film which chronicles the life of Virgil Starkwell, an inept bank robber. Um, it is just, a, it starts so well. Uh, anyone who's seen Tropic Thunder and the, the start of that film where they do the trailers from the other films, well, this isn't like that. It starts in mockumentary style, but the sort of um, lead up to current events and the outline of Virgil's sorry life, uh, it is so hilarious, the opening five minutes. It just really sets the tone for the whole film, and that is uh, some pretty crazy antics, uh, some great visual gags and some great word plays. Um, and the very sweet Janet Margolin playing his, uh, his uh, uh, hapless, I guess, wife, Louise. Um, I love this film, Fanny. I remember I first saw it as a, a teenager and just absolutely pissed myself laughing. God knows how many times I've watched it since, but how many great scenes are there in this? The, the lead up, the famous uh, visual gag of him playing a cello in a marching band and um, the difficulties in keeping up with the rest of the marching band, uh, the story about his cello lessons, his parents interviewed for the documentary being so embarrassed they wear disguises as um, with fake glasses and moustaches, um, the bank robbery scene where the uh, bank teller can't read his stick-up note and uh, an argument ensues amongst patrons and bank staff about what his note actually says, um, the subsequent bank robbery where they're trying to make it look like a movie and so get a famous film director aboard who goes a little overboard with the bank robbery as film idea, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the chain gang story when uh, they escape from jail and he's part of a chain gang. Uh, the one where he gets stuck uh, singing Negro, Negro spirituals with uh, a fellow inmate. Um, I just love everything about this movie, Finey, and uh, Bananas and Take the Money and Run, close thing for me, my favourite Woody Allen film, but Take the Money and Run wins the day. I just love this film to bits. Well, you've nailed one of my favourite movies. I reckon as a youngster, I must have watched it two or three times, and probably the first movie that I had to see again and again. And but You're right, visual gags. It was the full Monty, wasn't it, of humour. Visual gags, the um, sort of the w spoken word. And you've mentioned some great moments. I, I loved when he tried to when he was in prison and he carved himself a gun out of soap and yeah. used, used shoe polish to cover it. And he made a perfect gun. Would have got away as well, except it was raining the night that he held up the guard and ended up just having a handful of bubbles rather than a gun yeah. I mean, it was, some of it's obvious but you still enjoy it it's such a good movie well what about oh, just another, another couple have popped into my head what about when they're um another group are planning for a, a breakout of prison and they recruit virgil to be part of it and uh they ask they ask him to steal the guards underwear they say they've already got their uniforms he says well hang on if you've already got their uniforms what do you want their underwear for? And they, they say, well, the, uh, the boss wants to make this as realistic as possible. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't they name his daughter like a boy's name after <laughs> after the mother? Because you only ever see her with a mustache. <laughs> What's the other one of them? Oh, of course, when uh, he gets an early release because he uh, undergoes a clinical trial of a new vaccine, they said it's... A, a success apart from a brief side effect where he's temporarily turned into a rabbi. 
you say me that jail cell thing. And so the reason we celebrate the Passover holidays by eating matzo is to commemorate the time that <laughs> Moses, I can't remember the rest of it. Uh, very, very, good. very funny movie. All right, you're up, and I believe you have a comedy for us as well. Well, as I said, very nice. High five. Let's go to 2006. Now, people say there are two types of people, uh, two groups of thought when it comes to the movie Borat. Those who love it, those who don't. I reckon there's those who love it and those who just don't, aren't worth talking about. I, I, it is so, for me, it's such a brilliant, risky, and we, look, we now know the movie maker, of course, Sasha Baron Cohen, has made a an art form and continues incredibly to create a, a comedic art form out of disguise and filming reactions, true reactions to awkward situations. Borat is a combination of the scripted and the unscripted. It is the story of, of course, Kazakhstani reporter Borat Sagdayev and his trip to the United States to show his people back in Kazakhstan what life is like in the free west. He falls in love with a photo of Pamela Anderson and changes his mission to one of meeting and marrying Pamela, which he does in the traditional Kazakhstani way of grabbing her at an autograph signing, uh, signing, stuffing her into a sack and trying to run away with her. There are scenes in this that are absolutely 100% genuinely unscripted, sort of candid camera moments of cringeworthiness that are just unbelievable. My favourite, have you seen the movie? Do you like the movie? I have saw I saw his series, but like years and years and years ago, but I'd yeah. never actually seen either of the Borat movies. Yeah, I wouldn't bother with the second, but the first is there are so many brilliant scenes and a favourite is when he, well, look... <laughs> He talks to a politician, first of all, a genuine senator in Washington. And before they start the meeting, and it's being filmed, he says, um, is tradition Kazakhstan to give cheese on greeting? And the, the senator gratefully accepts it, starts eating the cheese. He goes, my wife would make it. And he nods in agreement. And then he says, with milk from her tit. <laughs> And the guy just spits the cheese out everywhere. I mean, memorable, yes. But probably the most memorable is he's learned etiquette in the Deep South and then goes to a dinner party at the house of a, um, a local minister uh, to show what he's learned in the rules of etiquette. And he starts off by going around the table and, your wife is very pretty. Pardon me, your wife is very pretty. Your wife is very pretty. And then he gets to the minister and he looks at the minister's wife and he goes, yours, not so much. <laughs> Great. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's a scene in that, I won't give it away, that is, look, it's mind-boggling and it, absolutely, it actually happened. But I won't give it away because it, it's just, it'll floor you if you're, you or those who haven't seen it, see it. But, yeah, it's a, it's an unbelievable movie, you know. It, it, for the absolute chutzpah, a word that I know you've embraced, a Jewish word, the actual cheek of it is quite amazing. The humour, sometimes it's difficult to watch, but other times it's side-splitting. I mean, he has a, this is this happened, he had a, somebody in a small motel come up and tell him 
that there's a telegram from Kazakhstan and he asks the guy to read it because he doesn't read English. And the guy has to read that he's telling that his wife, Oksana, has been eaten by a bear. And he's really very, you know, taciturn while reading it. And afterwards, Borek goes, you tell me, telling me my wife, Oksana, is dead? And he goes, yes, sir, she is. And he goes, high five, yes! Mm. I don't know what to do. Oh, it's a good movie. Look, I uh, I wax and wane a bit on uh, on uh, cringy, difficult to watch humour. Um, well, I find a little of it goes a long way. But uh, no, look, I, I should. I, what I saw of the uh, series he was doing, that's got to be at least twenty years ago. Uh, I remember enjoying that, so I should check out. Uh, certainly check out yeah. the first movie. You know why you'll like it because he he puts the right and far right thinking politicians and and individuals whose beliefs border on racist he embarrasses them by by making them celebrate their own you know narrow-minded views and that's his that's his sort of paradigm and you'll appreciate it yeah all right no i will i will check it out so our number six movies Take the money and run for me and for Finey. What's the full title of that movie? It's not just Borat. It's Borat something or other, isn't it? Yeah, make cultural learning for the great nation of from the great nation of America. Something yeah, right. Like. Yeah. All right. Uh, time now to turn our attention to music. And uh, like I said, this is an absolute favourite of mine. Certainly a favourite band of mine. A band that I've been lucky enough to see live uh, somewhere in the order of 40 odd times doing their final farewell tour at the moment. The band of which I speak is Midnight Oil. Where do you start with the Oils, Finey? Well, my favourite Midnight Oil album is, in fact, their second ever album, Head Injuries. This is the Oils at their rockiest. And I'll always be grateful that the first Midnight Oil song I ever heard, and I always remember watching this, sitting up on a Friday night, Lee Simon hosting, introducing this band from Sydney. I had heard of them, but I didn't had no idea what they sounded like. On comes this clip, pretty hastily made clip. I think it actually was made in the studios of Channel 7, this clip. And uh, another little oddity about the clip too, filmed, without a bass player because whilst Andrew Bear James, their original bass player, had left by this stage and would be replaced by Giffo, Peter Gifford, um, he hadn't at that stage joined the band. So they're actually running one short in this film clip. Uh, but this is my introduction to the band and this song just rocks so hard, particularly for 1979. And uh, I remember hearing it and just going, I must have this. So went out the following day and bought the album and never looked back like a lot of devotees of Midnight Oil who heard them. Once you heard them, you are enraptured by them. Um, so a very famous song. This one just kicks ass. Let's have a listen. <laughs>
great early hard rocking oils. You know, funny, I remember the first time I ever heard of them as well. Do you remember this dynamic? There was, well, you don't know the twins, Ian and Darren Bolton, that I went to school with, but we all used to write our favourite bands on our pencil cases. Did you ever do that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I yeah. didn't, but I know people who did. Yeah, and one of the Boltons had Midnight Oil, and I sort of respected him as a bit of an early music buff. So I, rem- I remember the first ever oil song I heard was, is it Buster Bondi or? Yeah, that's off the same album, Head Injuries. Yeah. yeah. So I remember Buster Bondi and, yeah, this is not, this is not dissimilar in that it is ear catching and at the time, totally compelling. In fact, if that album is your introduction to Midnight Oil, uh, talk about the first side, Packing a Punch, starts off with Cold, Cold Change, goes into Buster Bondi, Naked Flame, and then back on the borderline. And then I think, is it is it now? No, it might be Koala Sprint, but uh, cracking album, cracking band. Um, and uh, boy, they were a powerful unit and still are, as a matter of fact. Laura Finey, what's your number six? Hey, when they play live, do they still play, what is it, Wedding Cake Island? Uh, I don't think they play that much. I have heard them play it. But yeah, uh, that, that is I, an inst- instrumental, of course. Yeah, I didn't play it in Sydney My Music Bowl, where, of course, Peter Garrett did say that famous line to the crowd, disarm now, and he couldn't resist it. Dead arm later. Very good. <laughs> he, he said it. <laughs> All right, come on, what do you got? Okay, very different vein. Let's go to 1994. I'm going to play it straight up. Why am I going to play it straight up? Because I think a lot of people love this song and this their favourite version. But you don't really care for music, do you? Well, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall and the major lift, the baffled king composing high. Pretty haunting, isn't it? Leonard Cohen, um, the original performer, of course, but uh, ten years a, earlier. Yeah, what 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 an amazing um, voice Jeff Buckley had, and and what a tragedy um, that he passed so young. And uh, after that, Grace album, which uh, is a real—I mean, it was a substantial commercial hit, but a real cult classic, isn't it? Um, quite a haunting haunting rendition of that song i think you've got the right terminology rowan haunting and it's a song again not one that i would say people uh, love because it makes them get up and and feel energetic it's more about introspection i think all right uh interesting choice uh down to the top five now in our favorite movies and music and uh, speaking about introspection, this next segment can sometimes offer a little of that. Let's see what it throws up this week. Life Hacks, building a better world. 
Okay, I'm going to kick us off. Just before I do, though, Fonny, I meant to bring this up last week and forgot, but a bit of a shout-out now. Uh, and I'm mentioning it in Life Hacks because this is a good Life Hacks moment. Now, a few weeks back, we were talking about players, AFL players' tastes in music and how they could be a bit dodgy. And I gave a few shout-outs to those among the AFL fraternity I felt had uh, suitably um, uh, laudable taste in music, one of whom was former Port star Chad Corns. And we received uh, some correspondence after this, and it came from none other than Eddie Miller, son of Billy Miller of Billy Miller and the Ferrets fame, Don't Fall in Love. And uh, Eddie says, hey, Roko and Finey, loving the show. Thanks for the shout-out last year on the show. We're in hysterics. Just thought I'd tell you a funny tale in reference to Rowan's high esteem for Chad Corns and his music taste. My cousin is former AFL defender Jasper Pittard, and he told me that early in his career at Port, Chad walked into the weights room and heard one of the youngsters playing some modern rubbish music, probably a bubblegum techno CD. He said that Chad took the CD out of the player and snapped it in two and then promptly whipped out and put on a Faith No More album. I love Faith No More and was so bloody happy to hear that. Go Saters. So there you go. It's a, a, a similar story too to Bob Murphy, I think, at one point walking into, oh, sorry, being in the uh, Bulldog weights room and he had on the Beatles and uh, some young player came in and said, who the hell is that? And to which Bob replied, who the hell are you? Um, so some interesting <laughs> uh, different tastes there. But that's got nothing to do with my life hack this week. And my life hack this week is actually venturing into that uh, old man yells at cloud territory. But I don't care because this has irked me for a while. But uh, it happened again the other day. And I thought, why is this so? As Professor Julius Sumner Miller once said, and is, and it's probably also a reflection on how often I've been hitting the drive through at Maccas. Uh, and I'm, I'd point out, because I am going to gym at the moment, uh, I have just been getting some coffees at Maccas, just because it's easy and I don't have a coffee maker. But I've noticed this a number of times. Have you noticed the incessant use of the word today by people manning the counters at fast food restaurants particularly? And inappropriate use of the word today. To wit, um, I was at the drive-thru. I placed my order. Uh, they put it up on the screen there for you to have a look at and make sure it's okay so you don't get the wrong stuff. And the young, pleasant young girl says, is that all correct on the screen today? Well, yes, it's all correct on the screen today. Uh, was it incorrect yesterday? Will it be correct tomorrow? I fail to understand the significance of the word today. I fail to understand what importance it has in marketing terms, because it's clearly something some marketing guru has said, we need to stress the freshness, the nowness of our operations. So use today a lot, but it doesn't make sense. And it happened again today, today. I think the uh, cashier at the, um, at the drive-through today said something like, um, will that be all today? Yes, it will be all today. It might not be all tomorrow, Am I, I'm not getting much support here, Finey. Haven't you found that totally inappropriate and a, a bizarre use of the English language? Uh, today I do. Look, I agree. I, and I, I think that's actually a good pickup because I really get irked by obvious uh, greetings and closing comments that 
particularly fast food chains, but any large organisation where the employee or trainee has been told in their manual to greet with the following or to offer the following as a parting comment. Now, famously, of course, the upsell at McDonald's was taken to, you know, brought to public attention in supersize me and I think they did away with it thereafter, you know. Would you like fries with your meal? Could we upsize your meal? Could we turn you into a diabetic? Could we kill you? That sort of thing they don't do anymore. I haven't noticed today, but you know what I'm going to do as a favour for you? Because I really am onto these things and I don't let them lie idle. Next time somebody says something, something today, I'll check my watch and I'll say, and for the next 11 hours, I'll... I'll I guess so, yes. Or if it's near midnight, I'll say, hang on, wait, 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 tomorrow. It is bizarre. Well, I mean, just that example I quoted, right, which which sentence sounds correct? Is it is that all correct on the screen? Or is that all correct on the screen today? I mean, I might as yeah. well use the word cauliflower. I don't, just, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. Anyway... Enough yep. of that. But uh, anyway, that's my life hack this week because it's been getting to me. And I thought the other day, it, I don't know, annoyed me so much, I decided to write it down and use it in this segment. And I'm glad I did. What's yours? Well, everybody knows that local councils are collectives of, of sort of next-door neighbour next neighbor sort of over-your-fence, sticky-beak annoying people, aren't they? They just... I, I've got no idea what would possess somebody to run for local council other than Maybe there's kickbacks I don't know of or future attempts at higher higher office. But I'll tell you what, Rowan, this rush by councils, and it's not out of genuine concern for the planet. It's not out of genuine need to make smaller, foot, smaller footprints. It's cost-saving done with a Trojan horse. What am I talking about? I'm talking about making rubbish collection every fortnight instead of every week, turning your garbage bin into a shoebox in an attempt, they say, to reduce the garbage problem. But all they're doing is making people distribute garbage elsewhere, put it in other people's rubbish bins, drive it across suburban lines, hide it under carpets, throw it out the window, bury it in the back. Garbage ain't going anywhere, people. The fact is councils just don't want to collect it and it's becoming bloody difficult to find out where to put it. Well, I've got to say, that's news to me. I was certainly... Uh, is that... Which council are we talking about there? Glen Ira now only collect once every fortnight. Wow. OK. Well, uh, hats off... What are you supposed off... to do with it on the odd week? Hump it around in a rucksack? I don't know. Hats off to Stonington Council for continuing to make this a weekly occurrence, although the uh, recycling and gardening waste collections are only every two weeks. But, um, yeah, I would be in a bit of strife if the rubbish collection was only once a fortnight. That is, yeah, so it's pure cost-cutting. Are, are they reducing your bin size? Um, we, we inherited one of the smaller bins and... Uh, I remember ringing about getting a new one or a bigger one and the price I was quoted by was so outraged by we decided to stick with the small bin even after it lost its lid 
after one of the, you know, drivers sort of slammed it down, the lid came off and I thought, nah, stuff them. So we continue to put it out for the last seven or eight years without a lid. So, uh, yes, you could venture past our place and um, have a look uh, right through the contents of our bin. Gee, if I was newsworthy, that would save a lot of journalists considerable amount of trouble, wouldn't it? Um, anyway, so, uh, yeah, no, I sympathise, Finey. Have you been able to cut down on your rubbish production as a result? Not really. I, remember when bins used to be those round metal things and we played cricket on the road? I, I, always, felt, I always felt, by the way, that that, that's why it was always so hard to get a run out from side on because the round bin gave you the same sort of chance to run somebody out no matter where you were fielding. Then you got onto a real cricket field and all of a sudden that side on throw became very difficult. True. The, uh, the modern day bins certainly lend themselves to uh, quasi stumps more kindly than to the old metal version. No question about that. Yeah, they're all tall right. though. Uh, they are tall. They are tall. All right. That is life hacks for this week. Let's move on. Fantastic footy flashbacks. All right, Finey. Uh, when we started this segment, I was doing quite a bit of this, but uh, I haven't for a while. But I thought it was time. I don't know. A couple of things led me to think of this, and I'm talking about the old VFA competition. And I guess uh, the most timely of them was the sad passing the other week of former great Port Melbourne full forward Fred Cook, who both of us saw play a lot of footy and appreciate how big a name he was in Melbourne in the 70s and 80s. Well, Port Melbourne uh, was a phenomenally successful side. They won premierships in 74, 76, 77, and then a hat-trick of them under the coaching of Gary Bryce in 80, 81 and 82. Six flags in a nine-season period. Phenomenal result. But one of the most sensational, and uh, I'm lucky enough to have been at all those grand final wins. Oh, no, sorry, I wasn't at 74. I was at the other five. Um, but this one is certainly my favourite. And I just, I don't know why, but I watched the whole thing again the other night, and it was 1980, Port Melbourne were playing Coburg, and Port Melbourne were absolutely red-hot favourites. They were clearly the best side in the comp. They'd beaten Coburg comfortably, I think, in three previous meetings, including, I think, the second semi-final. But on grand final day, as can happen, Coburg uh, seemed to have their number. They um, stopped Port scoring. It was a very... Um, dour, you know, defensive-minded game. Cole Kinnear actually coaching Coburg. Phil Cleary, of course, famously playing for the Burgers and uh, some other well-known players as well. But uh, Coburg really shut Port down to the extent that at three-quarter time, Port Adelaide had kicked just five goals for the game. Coburg, Melbourne. I said Port Adelaide. Sorry, why did I do that? Port Melbourne had kicked just five goals and uh, John Douglas, the Coburg, kicked the first goal of the last quarter, which blew that lead out to 23 points. And in the context of this game, you thought, well, Port are gone. Well, they weren't gone because they got a little bit of inspiration from a couple of players. One of them, Jimmy Christo, a fantastic little man for Port for a number of years. Buster Harland bobbing up and another great little a little man for Port, Tony Bayer. 
And uh, Port suddenly realised their flag hopes were on the line and responded appropriately. It was an amazing last quarter comeback, this, and uh, dramatic, tense finish to this grand final. We've put together a little package here of all the key moments in the last quarter. Let's have a listen. Goss waiting for the crumbs, but it comes down here towards Christo, who runs in towards goal. Steady's puts it on its way, and I think he's put it through. A goal for Port Melbourne. They go to 6-15, a total of 51, with Coburg's 9-10-64. All right, it comes back into the middle of the pack and taken away here by uh, Evans. Evans out towards Wilkinson. Listen to the Port crowd roar. There's Goss, he's nearly caught. He hesitated, he goes back in, head down. Allender. And what's name up? Allender comes into it. It goes to a Bayer, a Bayer shoots for goal. It's through, I think. Yes, yes. it's a goal. Oh, Allender back on the ground, thumps the ball down. It's picked up by Wilkinson, handballs across the swan. He kicks it in towards goal, and it's through. Evans, a goal to Evans. And put over the back in it. Phil, you better take it. Right at Robin, Port Melbourne 8 15, a total of 63, Coburg 9 10 64. Only one point the difference. Can the Burroughs uh, get up there and can uh, the Lions hang on? There it comes back in towards Christo, he lines it up, puts it on its way. It's through. Port have hit the front. Anyone's ball is towards centre half forward and Halbert jackknifing missed it. A Bayer will take it away. Porter got the pace and the run of the ball. Good shepherding by Harlan. He's kicked three goals, six so far in the game. So Fred Cook lines them up from a 45-degree angle. Puts it on its way, he's hooked it, he's put it through. Now it's coming back. Come on, it's a gun. It's a goal. Hardigan now plays it across towards centre-half forward. There's the little fellow, Westcom, trying desperately to gain possession. Coming through, here is Herbert. Herbert's trying to get the bounce. Shepard, he needed. Herbert goes in towards goal. It's on the Play of this. Coburg are now 70 points to Port Melbourne 75. Only five points the difference in a hectic, dramatic finish to the 1980 grand final. It was Milroy out to Allender, Allender further afield, up towards the half forward line for Port Melbourne. Christo, as good as anyone, has got it. He's racing away, racing towards goal, and Christo has kicked the goal. It's a goal for Port Melbourne. There goes the bounce of the ball. No one able to break away with it. Player throwing himself in there was Douglas. It's taken away by Christo. Christo gets it as a siren. The half forward line, but there goes the siren. It's all over. And we have a win to Port Melbourne. Coming back desperately to take out the big one, the 1980 Grand Final. I'm pleased that those highlights included the great, sadly now late, Freddie Cook. And Jimmy Christo, who I had sort of struck a friendship up with um, post his career. I became quite the follower of Port Melbourne after hating them as a youngster. They, I barracked for Sandringham and then Caulfield. 
I'm surprised. Did you bounce for Port Rowan? I did, uh, and I remember Port. Um, I remember Port smashing Sandy by a hundred points in the '77 Grand Final. Yeah. Uh, yeah, why I, is that weird? Say, oh, because a lot of Essendon supporters were drawn to Coburg, not because of the similar colours. By the way, blue with the red sash, not black, but because there was a sort of you know clubs had synergies with other clubs, and there were Essendon players that ended up playing for Coburg. Well, and in so, fact, there, well, there were two of whom played in this grand final. One of them, Brad Nimmo, Nimmo and, and, the other, for and the other one, Dean Hardigan. There you go. Um, so, no, you're right. You're right. But I think Port was on TV a lot. I started watching. In fact, the first year I ever watched Port was in 1972 when their playing lineup boasted uh, the names um, R. Barassi and R. Skilton, as yes. a matter of fact. Yeah, Pretty, yeah, yeah. Pretty handy um, uh, units running around for the borough then. But, uh, yeah, I certainly was a Port Melbourne fan. Um, yeah, look, fantastic finish that. And if you do uh, watch the full replay here, and there's about 45 minutes, make sure you watch the post-match stuff too because Gizé did it well. I, Rob Asprey goes into the Port rooms. It's all spontaneous. He gets Fred Cook up to say a few words and he interviews him and, uh, live on TV with the crowd going berserk. And then Gary Bryce comes in with the cup and they're all going mad. And and then Ted Henry gets sent to the Coburg rooms and they're all shattered in there. And he speaks to Cole Kinnear, who's virtually in tears. And, you know, it's just terrific stuff. Gee, um, you know, moments like that made you really appreciate how great the VFA was. And, uh, yeah, really miss those days of uh, not only that competition, but the coverage of it by, uh, well, Channel O firstly, and then, Channel 10. So uh, VFA nostalgia for me this week, Fanny. What uh, what do you got for us? Were there any ads on that coverage? Because There are, there are ads on that coverage. Sabah. No, yeah, they had that. Uh, what else do they have? Oh, Franco Cozzo got a fair run around. <laughs> um, there's one for Alexander's Men's Store in this one, actually, yeah. with some pretty funky music going on. So uh, yeah, check it out. Very good. All right, your turn. What is the opposite of what you just presented? Well, you gave us a VFA grand final, a nail-biter. I've got a VFL, or then VFL, now AFL, pre-season game of little importance that resulted in a thrashing. Oh, good. That'll get the punters hooked. Well, it should, because it was noteworthy for many reasons. A... It involves our two clubs, so I thought a bit of indulgence there. B, C, D and E are more interesting. It was the first public outing, official outing for Nicky Winmar, a St Kilda footballer, who only 20 minutes into his career got reported, courtesy of Mark Harvey, coat hangering him and Winmar taking, obviously, umbrage and then meeting out his own justice. So Winmar reported. It is a terrible game for Mark Harvey. He'd had a brilliant pre-season, apparently. Looked in great form. And then, unfortunately, breaks his leg. He would go on to break his leg again in round nine after five minutes. They were the only five minutes of season 87. And sadly, that spiralled into an eating disorder. And really, he would fight back from that. But that was a, a terrible part of his life, let alone career. That's part of this game. It's Daryl Bulldog's first game as St Kilda coach. And we hear a little excerpt from Pete Donigan on the boundary at three-quarter time where 
he quotes Daryl Baldock saying something utterly ridiculous. I'll leave that for the audio. It's Chris Danaher's first game. He's best on ground. There's just a lot of Tony Anthropus plays his first ever game for Essendon. And St Kilda unveil Dean Rice, who has a great game and goes on to have a great career. So it's important for a number of reasons. And it's pre-season, 1987, Essendon red-hot favourites. Let's have a listen to a few of the highlights. As he sends the ball back towards the centre of the ground, off the top of the pack. This time it's Chris Danaher, and he looks good to me, this young fellow. But they're all good, the Danahers. As it comes back now, out there it goes. That's Daisy Williams getting it over to Vander, but he's well collared. Uh, the umpire call play on Richardson tries oh. to throw it away. They're going in, no big part, oh. but Richardson got a heavy one on the head. Oh, are they going in hard? This and killed them off. We'll see here on replay, Vanderhaar and Crawley on the ground here, but Richard, oh, oh. Richardson popped that. Oh, did he cop one? They would have been teammates too in, uh, Western, in Western Australia, both playing for Swan Districts. Waiting now for Richardson with side bottom on the mark. Richardson about 40 metres out from goal. Going, there she is on its way. That's a good kick. And that's another goal to the Bombers. <laughs> Free kick to uh, side bottom, over to Winmar, a long kick over the half forward line, a tap down low, knocks it on, goes after it again, Heard right on his tail, he gives a hand pass back, in comes Winmar, oh. that away a free kick, he was caught by Harvey, and the umpire going across, Harvey caught one that time from Taylor. He should reverse that free kick. They're all having a go now, this is typical of the night football series, the National Panasonic Cup, the sixth one of the series. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if he reversed that. that well, he's pulling the book out now, Pete. Well, Winmar yes. certainly got a nice initiation to uh, yeah, lead football tonight. Thank you, Pete. Well, Daryl Bulldog has addressed his players and told them that the game is not over, despite the fact that they trail by 39 points. Chris Danaher, he's made a great debut tonight. Kicks either foot up towards Ezard, who's kicked a couple of goals. That's almost in the back. The umpire says no. Ezard, another chance. It's stolen from him, though, by Taylor. Well shepherded by Nixon. He's gone for a short pass. Elphinstone marks right on the 50-metre line. Well, after half-time, it's been all Essendon. He's got a 15-metre penalty, Elphinstone. Coming in solidly as Harvey. Might have got winded in the process. Oh, he's in a bit of pain. Whichever way it goes, it's uh, not looking too good. Where did he get that? Right on the thigh, I think. Got a corky, perhaps. The play has been stopped. Uh, Unless it's a stretcher case, I don't see the reason for doing such. That's the rule as I understand it. But let's take a look at it again, Luke. He gets met rather heavily, I thought, on the thigh. And did he land awkwardly on the knee? You never tell, Peter. The accidents happen so easily. Well, you're not wrong about Mark Harvey. It was uh, uh, tragic for him. And uh, you mentioned the eating disorder. Um, actually, well, yeah, I'm patting myself on the back here. I actually did the interview in which he revealed having that eating disorder called bulimia fine. Um, I, I didn't know that. That, that. That's a big story. That, well done, mate. Uh, it was 1993. He was due to play his 150th game and went out to interview him just for that fact, uh, you know, typical sort of milestone interview and uh, got talking about his injuries and um, I don't know why he decided to drop it there, but he decided that he said, well, you know, in actual fact, uh, number of injuries I said that I had, I didn't really have them. I was covering up the fact that uh, I was bulimic and 
Um, I went and checked it out subsequently with my doctor. He said bulimia was virtually unheard of in males. Um, so, yeah, it ended up becoming quite a big story and uh, Harv's ended up becoming an ambassador for um, whatever the name of the uh, foundation was that uh, cared for people with anorexia and bulimia and eating disorders. And, um, yeah, a, a lot of good came out of it. So, um, yeah, interesting stuff. But you're right, some, uh, some pretty notable careers launched there. And funnily enough, too, I mean, going into that game, Essendon had been a finalist um, the uh, previous, well, God, six years, I think, and won flags and... Uh, been knocked out in the elimination final the year before. St Kilda had uh, come off, what, four straight wooden spoons. But uh, at the end of that season, St Kilda were actually starting to show a bit of promise and Essendon uh, didn't have a good year at all. And, in fact, they finished only half a game ahead of the Saints in ninth spot on the ladder and the Saints 10th. So, um, yeah, uh, interesting pointer to what lay ahead for both those sides in the short and uh, longer term. Unfortunately, though, parlayed into nothing for the Saints. And on that note, we uh, wrap it up there for this week's uh, episode, Finey. Well, we covered a lot of ground, Rowan. Good stuff. We're into the top five of our movies and songs next week, so I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, everyone. Make sure you uh, continue to support us on the supporter page through ACAST, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Or, better still, become an official Footyology patron via our many links on footyology.com.au to Patreon, a wonderful supporter of independent media and publishing. And uh, that money we receive basically goes straight to our many, well, not many, but uh, a reasonable amount of contributors and helpers and people who just want to see this little independent operation continue not only to survive, but thrive like the old tigers. On victory, they thrived, eat them alive. We don't want to eat anyone alive, but we do want to keep putting this podcast out every week and keep bringing you quality content at footyology.com.au. Thanks for your company again, everyone. See you next week.